it was easily predictable. Igor Danchenko acquitted in federal court on all four counts of lying to the FBI about where he obtained all of that phony information that he secretly fed ex-British spy Christopher Steele for his fictive dossier that smeared Donald Trump as a Russian asset. The loss is, yes, a setback for special counsel John Durham, but the verdict itself, no surprise. This case was tried in Arlington, Virginia. 80% of the residents voted Democrat in the last presidential election. And so, in a politically charged case involving names like Trump and Clinton every day in the courtroom, this was always an uphill battle for Durham, just as it was in the earlier trial of Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman, who was acquitted, you'll recall, by a Washington, D.C. jury in a district where 92% cast ballots for Joe Biden in the last election, and a scant 5% for Donald Trump. But the not guilty verdicts? Largely irrelevant. They're a minor footnote in the overall sordid story of the greatest mass delusion in American political history. The Virginia trial was never really about Igor Danchenko at all, sure. He was the named defendant, but as testimony unfolded, it was obvious he was just a conduit for a worthier ambition, and that is a damning indictment of the FBI's gross misconduct. Durham candidly admitted to the jury in his closing argument when he referred to the Bureau as the elephant in the room. In reality, the crooked FBI was in the dock throughout the week-long trial exposed for its years of shameful lies, shocking corruption, and devious cover-ups. It was former director James Comey and his sleazy Confederates that colluded with the Hillary Clinton campaign to falsely accuse Trump of colluding with Russia. They framed him for alleged crimes he never committed. Attorney Fox News legal analyst and two-time New York Times best-selling author. This is the brief with Greg Jarrett. Billionaire investor Michael Pinto has a warning for you. Don't listen to anyone who tells you how bad the crash will be and when it exactly will happen. Nobody knows. But the CEO of Wells Fargo warns the worst is yet to come for Americans. Pay attention to the economic data. Inflation is at a 40-year high. And make no mistake about it, the recession is real, no matter how the White House tries to change the definition. That's why Bloomberg, Goldman Sachs, and Jim Cramer are all calling for gold to surge. Gold and silver have historically moved opposite the stock market and in the long term can preserve your purchasing power. Call 800-809-8500 and Lear Capital, the number one rated gold company, will present the same trusted options they have been giving successful investors since 1997. At Lear Capital, most IRA rollovers qualify for no IRA fees for up to five years. Their current incentive offers up to $15,000 in bonus silver for well-qualified new customers. 
A three-minute call can protect your portfolio with the power of real physical gold. Call 800-809-8500 today. Again, that's 800-809-8500 and tell them Greg Jarrett sent you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. The genesis of all the lies in the Russia hoax came from Hillary Clinton herself, according to declassified documents. In the run-up to the 2016 presidential election, she personally approved a plan to defame her political opponent as a clandestine Russian mole. Her campaign manager, Robbie Mook, confirmed it in the earlier trial five months ago. But that's not all. Clinton acolytes covertly funded the specious dossier, authored by the now-disgraced Christopher Steele, who was already pocketing cash, loads of it, while on the FBI payroll. Hillary's cronies and political operatives not only furnished the fabricated garbage in the document, they disseminated it to the Trump-loathing media. With the FBI as winning accessories, the Russia hoax took flight and a dilating witch hunt ensued. Now, any intelligent person who's ever read Chris Steele's preposterous report knew immediately that it was bogus. It read like a dime novel penned by a halfwit. Naturally, the geniuses in the liberal mainstream media thought it was real. Blinded by their own bias and contempt for Trump, they accepted it as gospel. They reported it as such, never bothering to verify any of it. The FBI, though, they knew better. Early on, the agency easily debunked much of it as demonstrably false. Yet in October of 2016, they offered Steele a reward of $1 million. That's the equivalent of a bounty on Donald Trump's head. If only the former spook would corroborate its contents. Steele, of course, couldn't do it because, well, it's impossible to prove the truth of a lie. Unable to verify the dossier, though, did not stop the FBI from exploiting it. That very same month, Comey signed a warrant application to spy on the Trump campaign by vowing under oath to the FISA court that the faux document was verified, even though it was not. He further represented to the judge that the dossier was credible and that Christopher Steele was reliable, intentionally omitting, hiding the vital fact that Steele had been fired by the FBI for lying. Three more warrants followed over the course of a year as the FBI doubled down and tripled down on its deceptions that the dossier was verified. And all the while, top agency officials knew that their pivotal piece of evidence was completely fake. But the FBI's illicit conduct was not limited to just lying to the court. Undeterred by the constraints of law, the Bureau used the dishonest dossier as a pretext for escalating its investigation of Trump. Ever the Machiavellian actor, Comey tried to entrap the newly elected president in a private meeting about the dossier in January of 2017 and never telling him 
that the FBI had discredited it. Their discussion was immediately leaked to the journalists so that reporters would have an excuse to publish the dossier itself, which they did. Almost overnight, the Trump-Russia phantasm ignited a public firestorm that endured. Trump deserved the truth about the document, not to be sullied in the media by erroneous accusations underwritten by the Hillary Clinton campaign and circulated by Comey's FBI. Days after the inauguration, Danchenko, Steele's primary source for the dossier, confessed to Comey's agents that the document was all just a sham. As Democrats and the media proceeded to convict Trump in the court of public opinion, the sanctimonious James Comey and others at the Bureau remained mute, happily watching as their nemesis struggled to defend himself. They continued peddling lies to the FISA court while withholding from both Congress and the public their exculpatory evidence that Trump was innocent. Collusion was a hallucination that they helped propagate. They concealed Danchenko's admission that the dossier was a collection of idle rumors, innuendo, multiple hearsay, and literally gossip in a bar. Instead, behind the scenes, the FBI manipulated the narrative to depict Donald Trump as guilty of conspiring with Russia. Comey, Clinton, and others colluded to frame him and a victim from office. There were countless other acts of misfeasance and malfeasance by the FBI, all of which were driven by the agency's unabashed hatred and scorn of Trump. They weaponized the law for partisan purposes. They politicized our nation's justice systems. To some extent, they succeeded. Through their abuse of power, they managed to convince tens of millions of citizens that the president was a traitor without a shred of evidence. There was never any credible evidence that Trump was a Russian agent. There were no seditious acts that he cooked up with the Kremlin or some nefarious cabal to steal the 2016 election. It was all a damning fiction that constitutes what is surely the dirtiest political trick ever perpetrated in politics. Special counsel John Durham should be commended for his dogged pursuit of the truth. He may have lost the trial, yes, but he succeeded in unraveling a multitude of pernicious lies. He exposed how a malignant force of unelected officials committed uncommon corruption through insipid deceptions and malevolent acts. They subverted our rules of law and undermined the democratic process. By their venal acts, they damaged the institutions of American government, and they squandered the nation's trust. James Comey and his miserable minions may be gone now from the FBI, but the wretched rot lingers. Joining me now to talk about it is John Solomon, who's founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief at Just the News, one of the best investigative reporters I know. He has broken more stories on the Russia hoax than anyone. And John, thank, thanks so much for joining The Brief. 
Uh, first of all, you know, let me get your reaction to this. As I said in my opening remarks, I'm not terribly surprised. This is, you know, Arlington County, Alexandria, Virginia, Fairfax, overwhelmingly uh, Democratic. And in a politically charged case, uh, I mean, you could see this outcome, this not guilty verdict a mile away. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Greg. And uh, we had a lot of people come on the TV and radio show over the last uh, few weeks saying the same thing, which is, listen, don't expect that John Duren's real goal here is to get a uh, conviction. He wants to use his trial to tell the story that he hasn't been able to tell the American people. And he did that. In fact, many times he treated the government's witnesses as the more hostile witness. Um, right. uh, the, the the FBI agent Helson and others, they, they were really uh, put through the grinder. And in his closing argument, he said something, and I think this was the clue that we knew the verdict was probably going to come out this way. He said, listen, uh, it is clear that you may conclude that the FBI didn't handle this right. And I'm not here to defend them. When you tell the jury that, that the people who you're saying were lied to were kind of part of the problem, you've given the jury license, I think, to say, yeah, listen, the FBI was a problem, not Danchenko. And I think a lot of people saw that closing argument, called me up and said, you know what? I don't think there's going to be a conviction. and uh, But he gave us some incredible new parts of the narrative of just how bad the FBI was. Yeah. And explain that. I mean, I mentioned it in my introduction, all of the lies that were peddled by James Comey and his yeah. Confederates, all of the Russia hoax invented by Hillary Clinton, funded by Hillary Clinton. They were acting in collusion together to frame Donald Trump for crimes he never committed. Yeah. And there are lies up and down the chain. I think we got some new lies in the course of this thing. We know that uh, that Danchenko himself, Igor Danchenko, was accused of lying and not telling the FBI he was getting his information from Charles Dolan. Charles Dolan comes in and testifies and said, well, the information I gave him that went to steal, I lied about it. I made it up. It wasn't true. Right. So right at the source, the core, where all of these allegations get sucked up into the steel dossier, there's lying. And then the lying occurs between Danchenko and the FBI. Then the lying occurs from the FBI to the FISA court. We've got people doctoring documents, uh, telling people they had verified the application when, in fact, it had no verified application. When the agent testified, uh, the analyst testified, uh, Brian Auten, that not a single thing had been verified in the Steele dossier, and that it was still the Steele dossier was put into the FISA warrant. All of those are lies of omission or commission. And I think you get the sense that this political dirty trick, that we've called it, it was based on lies from the source origins in the summer of 2016 in Moscow, where Charles Dolan and Danchenko are through Christopher Steele, the FBI, the FISA court, the Congress, and then ultimately the American people. We were the ones deceived for three years. Yeah. And what is so infuriating, I think, for many people who've been following this story is how James Comey lied. I mean, James Comey swore under oath uh, to the FISA court that uh, in his affidavit in support of the warrant to spy on the Trump campaign, oh, our evidence, the dossier, is it's, it's verified, it's credible, and our source, meaning Christopher Steele, is reliable, omitting the fact that uh, they'd fired Steele for lying, so he wasn't reliable at all. And as Brian Outen testified during the Danchenko trial, they hadn't verified any of it. Nothing. Uh, and, you know, and it gets worse. I mean, it comes January right around the time of, of the inauguration. And, you know, uh, Comey tries to set up Trump to entrap him. 
Uh, they have this meeting in which he brings up to the president, newly elected president, you know, the dossier, and doesn't really tell him the truth of it. And the whole point of that conversation was to leak it to the media so they'd publish the dossier, which they did. And then, of course, you know, this phantasm, as I, I describe it, overtakes the country for the better part of two years in which the witting accessories, the mainstream media that hated Trump, convicted him in the court of public opinion. And you can just imagine that Comey and Strzok and McCabe and all of the other bad guys at the FBI are, are sitting you know, in the Hoover building and they're laughing and they're keeping silence. They, they withheld the exculpatory information that Trump was innocent and they watched as the media and Democrats went after Trump with a vengeance. I mean, that is just unconscionable, despicable behavior by top officials at the FBI, isn't it? It is the most concise summary. That is an excellent summary. It's what your books, your two books pointed out to all of us. You got the big picture before anyone, I think, Thank in you. understanding uh, what was at, at work. And when you want to understand how did we get to an FBI that could carry out this big of a lie and know it's a lie and still feel okay do doing it. Well, all you have to do is watch television last night and see Pete Strzok, the head of Crossfire Hurricane, so delusional, he actually thinks that 9-11 is a smaller, less consequential event than what happened at January 6th. You have people gripped by a partisan ideology now in the FBI making investigative and intelligence decisions, and that's how it goes. The thing. He's more worried about the smelly people at Walmart with his girlfriend, who he shouldn't be having an affair with because he's a counterintelligence agent open to potential uh, coercion, uh, and they're, they're, they're lamenting. 50, 60% of the country. They are elitist. They despise everyday Americans. They actually have a partisan view of the world that 2,900 people being killed on September 11th isn't nearly as bad as a handful of people uh, uh, raiding the Capitol and you know, clearly rioting and doing bad things. But he can't even equate the two, but he does. And, and it's remarkable. I think the bigger question here is, I think most people in Everyday Americans have come to the idea that Washington has lost its mind. That during the Trump derangement syndrome years, yeah, right. the FBI went crazy. Hillary Clinton went crazy. There is a bigger question here that I think has a longer lasting question to the security of America. There are moments in the presentation at the Danchenko trial and then in the footnotes that um, John um, – but the DNI, uh, uh, John Ratcliffe declassified from the IG report that right. raised some serious questions about the FBI's tradecraft, meaning their ability to stop future, future Russian spies. I just want to point these out because these will persist long after Donald Trump's gone and this time hopefully calms down and we get back to the normal politics. One of them is you see the CIA repeatedly warning the FBI that their sources are infiltrated, likely Russian intelligence, likely disinformation, and nobody yells stop. No one says, wait a second, we can't get suckered like we did on Robert Hansen. I covered the, a lot of the Robert Hansen right. stuff. A, enormous failure of blindness and silliness in the FBI. Then you see in this trial, uh, the lead agent who's handling Danchenko, so in love with his source that when a 20-plus year veteran intelligence analyst uh, comes in and she says, hey, I think this guy is Russian intelligence. I think he's inserting disinformation in. He's connected to these players close to Vladimir Putin. And Charles Dolan is complaining. I'm really worried this is a Russian intelligence operation. The agent goes, eh, I'm smarter than you. Forget it. 
those sort of things, which go beyond the politics and the get Trump and all that, they raise some serious concerns that our intelligence agencies have not learned enough from the Hansen or the 9-11 failures, that they're continuing not to challenge assumptions and falling in love with sources and storylines. That makes you blind. And it's one of the big things that when I talk to the experts, they get all the Trump stuff. They get all of the dirty trick stuff. They're worried that we're not very good at the tradecraft of detecting who our enemies are, who our spies are. And with China and Russia as determined as they are, that should scare the living heck out of us, regardless of whether you're a Trump fan, a Hillary Clinton fan, or just an independent. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the bigger picture uh, because we could flog the Russia hoax for all it's worth (laughs) uh, for, you know, the next 10 years. And, And by the way, uh, under law, Durham is required to produce a report right. uh, to the attorney general. Uh, that report must be made public. I don't see how you can you know, prevent it from being made public since the Mueller report was made uh, public. Uh, and I think we're going to find out even more uh, malevolence, misfeasance, malfeasance, and, and just plain stupidity born of of political bias by the FBI. I think we're going to find out a whole lot more in in that forthcoming report, don't you? I do. I think every step of the way, John Durham has given us uh, revelations that people like Devin Nunes and, and Jim Jordan and Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson, with all of their classified access, they didn't get. He really did get to the bottom of this. I think people will fault him, and legitimately so, that he didn't take on the FBI and indict the real people, that he tried to indict the FBI in the court of public opinion by going after smaller fish in the court of law. And I think that strategy was rejected by jurors. But he gave us a lot of the data points that we had been deprived and that had been literally omitted from the public dialogue and, quite frankly, hidden from Congress. I think that's one of the crimes that hasn't been prosecuted. But we're going to learn a lot more from that report. No doubt about it. Yeah, no doubt about it. And by the way, thank you for your kind words about my two books. And and our our listeners should know. I go back to your books every day when I'm writing in the Russian collusion story because there's just a nugget. There's a context. And I I I remember reading that in Greg's book. I can't tell you what an amazing gift they are. They keep giving every time I go back, write a story. I, I have them on my desk right around the corner here. There, I check them often because you you did the most comprehensive and big picture look at this. No one did a better job synthesizing it, and I keep Thank those you. by my 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 desk every day. Thank you very much. And and by the way, the most cited source in all of the footnotes, and there were fifteen hundred footnotes wow. plus in That's the uh, in the second book, Witch Hunt. But the most cited source in the footnotes is you. You broke more stories that I ended up relying on, and uh, you never got anything wrong. You you were absolutely 100% right. So kudos to you. You know, Sarah Carter and uh, Lee Smith and uh, Molly, uh, those were the four of us that really banded together. And I remember when uh, we were sitting around really early in this, I think you might have been there at the time, but uh, we were on a Hannity set, and Hannity looked over to Sarah and I said, this is a dirty, smelly onion, for God's sakes, peel it back to its core. And that's really what this was. We would just take one layer off at a time and get one fact that led to another fact. Um, and uh, it was fun to be part of that ensemble cast. And like I said, your books were the moments where people got to get above the trees and see the, the corrupt forest for what it was. And they're, they're, they're going to they're gonna be in history courses and in law courses for many years to come about Thank what we've learned about this era in American history. Well, you know, every time we would peel back another layer of the onion. And I thought to myself, can this level of corruption get any worse? 
And a week later, we'd find out more evidence of corruption, even worse levels of corruption. It kept going and going and going. And now we learn, you know, just through the Danchenko trial, stuff that, you know, we perhaps didn't even know a million dollar bounty on Trump's head to be paid to Christopher Steele, if only he could verify the lies in his dossier. And and my goodness, Danchenko was on the FBI payroll as well. After he lied to the FBI, they paid him more than $200,000 over the course of more than three years to continue peddling more lie. And of course, you know, this FBI analyst agent gets on the witness. Oh, he was such a wonderful story. I, I thought, you dumbbell, you were snookered. You Are were. you kidding me? Yeah. And you still think, I mean, I think he was just trying to justify all of the money he paid Danchenko. Oh, yeah, yeah it was worth it's it. Funny. He was a reliable. I mean, can you keep believe it? Keep in mind that they knew from two, the late 2008 that Danchenko was a guy that told a reliable source in the United States he was looking to pay people to get classified secrets from the Obama administration. He was on the radar as a known spy. And here's one of the amazing things. Again, going back to the tradecraft thing, the idea that there's a longer-term vulnerability that the FBI has been exposed for. Uh, the FBI closes down on Danchenko, not because they disproved the allegation or they satisfied himself. They mistakenly thought he left the country. He was still here. Our FBI thought he had left. That's how bad these clowns are. These guys that were on the stand, those were the people running that investigation. We yeah. have a weakness in the counterintelligence world. It's bad. Yeah. And and the, the top officials of the FBI, in my judgment, fall into two categories, idiots and morons. And that... <laughs> spells trouble with a capital T. Um, I want to move a little bit forward. You have an incredibly important story out that says Joe Biden's family got an interest-free, forgivable loan from China. Tell us about that. Yeah, who thought that the president that would forgive all that student debt may have gotten the idea from China, but that's what China <laughs> did for his brother and his son, Hunter and James Biden. They structured this deal where five million bucks goes to uh, their companies in the summer of 2017. And there's some very explosive uh, contexts. But let me just start with the core stuff, which is they want to help this energy company buy up natural gas in America. So Joe Biden's family is helping communist China try to suck away from America the very natural gas resources that now Joe Biden won't let us have as Americans, right? But he's okay selling it to China through his family. Uh, the money is set up as a loan that can be forgiven. It has a zero interest terms. The deal was so controversial, it was so unseemly that the Chinese risk uh, uh, risk uh, advisors were actually worried about. China thought it was kind of corrupt and bad. Still, they proceed with it. What happens to the money? Hunter Biden and James Biden grab the dollars. It doesn't go to their venture, and it goes into their back pocket in the form of of um, uh, retainers and monthly fees. It base and as the letter from the Chinese uh, company says that I put out there, this is clearly just an effort to give money to the Biden family. But even the Chinese were feeling this was an unseemly thing to do. Their risk um, assessors were flagging this as a problem. They're trying to figure out how can we get the money to the Bidens? This is an extraordinary thing for two, two reasons. One, the FBI has known about it at least since 2020 because Chuck Grassley put out uh, a summary of the FBI interview that Tony Bobolinsky, the one of the Hunter Biden business partners, told the FBI, and here's the more troubling part of it. 
He says that some of the money the Bidens get in 2017 when Joe Biden is a private citizen actually was for work done when Joe Biden was still in the vice president. It was deferred compensation. That means that this was an influence peddling scheme that occurred while Joe Biden was still in the office and they defer the payments and try to disguise it. So it looks like something that goes to the Biden family after Joe was out of office. That is a red flag in what Chuck Grassi said after reading this FBI document. There is overwhelming proof of criminality in the Biden family. And why does it take four years to get an answer on whether anyone's going to be charged? It's just just amazing. The, the level of influence peddling in the Joe Biden crime family is really breathtaking. Uh, and then th- there's there's another story, and you know a lot about this. This came out from the Daily Mail. Yeah. You had this a long time ago. But, you know, it's this bombshell report that Hunter Biden collected $40 million in a deal with the Russians. That's right. And his father, Joe Biden, knew all about it. The evidence includes money transfer. You know, it comes courtesy of Elena Baterina. You know her, wife of the former mayor of Moscow. Her brother was Hunter's partner. You believe it? He's in partnership with the Russians. And there are photographs of, of the brother posing with Hunter and Joe Biden, Cafe Milano, Washington, D.C. Yeah. And, of course, there are more than a dozen photos of Joe and Hunter's business associates, even though Joe continues to insist, oh, gosh, I know nothing about my son's sleazy business. He's a fine young man, yeah. uh, you know, $40 million. But that is not exactly the right figure, is it? It's not in the story. The story begins. Elena Baterina is the only oligarch who was a female in Russian history. She was a billionaire. First, she was the wife of the Moscow mayor. Uh, there's always been questions that have hung over her. And back about a decade ago, when Barack Obama was president, she had a banking problem. She couldn't get money into the United States. And so she reaches out to Hunter Biden and his team, which includes uh, a guy named uh, Devin Archer, later convicted in a fraud scheme involving a tribe. And their first goal is to get her a banking account, to get over these security concerns that American banks have. They score her that bank account. There's some really raw conversations, some locker room talk goes on when they try to eventually get this work done. And then uh, they start doing business deals with her. And there's an amazing document the FBI seizes in the spring of 2017. We know this because we got it from the FBI. We got it out of the court files from the Devin Archer criminal case. Remember, Devin Archer is the right-hand man. He gets Hunter Biden, his Burisma job. He's involved in the China deals. Um, And he's convicted of fleecing a tribe while he was working alongside of Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden's not charged. But there's a document from one of the companies they have. I believe it was called Burnham Capital. This Burnham group, they bought it out of bankruptcy or something. They own it. They were running it. And in a board meeting, I believe in the summer of 2015 or the spring of 2016, Devin Archer uh, briefs the board. This is a corporate board meeting saying, this woman, Elena Batterina, we have a total of $200 million of business we're doing with her, of which the $40 million in that real estate transaction, the Daily Mail is talking about something we wrote about last year. That's a part of it. But the total size of the business relationship, according to uh, Devin Archer, at a board meeting where you're obligated to give your board executives the truth, he puts it at $200 million. We've been talking for four years, five years at the Trump family was in collusion with Russia. They weren't. You know who was in collusion with Russia? The Biden family. Biden's family. That's the amazing. Right. They were projecting themselves on Donald Trump. $200 million. I mean, it's truly amazing. Um, are you, what, what is going on? 
with the investigation of Hunter and Joe Biden. The U.S. attorney uh, is David Wise. Um, ultimately, he's answerable to the Attorney General Merrick Garland, and his boss is Joe Biden. Under federal regulations, as I've pointed out ad nauseum, uh, Garland is required to recuse himself. Requ- this is a, it's uh, not an optional disqualification. Oh, it's mandatory. You know the law. And so, yeah. but he refuses to do it, which invites the question, is there a protection racket uh, for the Bidens being run out of the Department of Justice? That is a great question. I'll tell you what some of the FBI uh, sources that I've been talking to in the last few weeks think would happen. There's been an odd uh, series of events, uh, uh, and I think they, they speak volumes about what's going on below the surface we can't see. There was a significant amount of grand jury activity in the spring. Witnesses were brought before the grand jury and interviewed in the spring, and they saw the reports, and uh, even Hunter Biden's lawyers were acknowledging that there was a significant activity going on. And then it all came to stop in the summer, like around June or July, right when the grand jury was set to expire in Delaware. And everybody thought, well, now judgment time's coming. We're going to see either a plea deal or an indictment, and nothing happened. And it just went into rock silence. And then out of the blue, like a week ago, there was these weird reports in the mainstream media saying FBI agents believe they have enough evidence to indict Hunter Biden. That was an old story. If you read down into it, it said, oh, they made that conclusion months and months ago. Right. They did. That's why it went to a grand jury. The FBI makes that conclusion and you take evidence to the grand jury. So the process had wound past where the news media was kind of fakely and falsely reporting it. I think a lot of people on the inside who know what's going on in this case are worried that what's going to happen after the election is that after all the work and coming up to the line of maybe making a decision to charge the president's son, they're going to announce the creation of a special counsel, and it's going to wind the clock all the way back and it's going to buy the Bidens another six months, a year or two. That's what people fear. Now, I have no reason to know that's going to happen, but people on the front lines fear that. And what was most troubling about what we've heard from these whistleblowers, what Jim Jordan, Chuck Grassi, and Ron Johnson, there are 20 whistleblowers. Now, I've covered the FBI for 30 years. Greg, you've done it just as long, if not longer. Uh, I've never heard of 20 whistleblowers in any agency coming out. They all come out once and they have the same narrative. The narrative is that Donald Trump got treated wrongly. They opened up cases without a predicate on him. And then they were shutting down legitimate predicated cases on Hunter Biden interfering, calling it disinformation. That combination of, of events is universally told by these 20 plus uh, whistleblowers that suggests that there's a political thumb on the scale beyond the dual system of justice. We talk about somebody's had their thumb on the scale. And I think the fear now is that thumb is going to create a delay game, create a special prosecutor has to go all the way back like Robert Mueller did and start all over. (laughs) That's the fear. Some people on the front lines have. Yeah. And, and you know, you could avoid all that if you name David Weiss, the U.S. attorney, as the That's special right. counsel, because, I mean, he has been conducting the investigation for the better part of the last Great three point. years. Yeah. And, and that's where I fault, and I've said this publicly, and I've written about it in columns, this is where I fault Bill Barr, former attorney general. Yeah. Before he left office, he should have elevated uh, David Weiss to special counsel status to give him protection and give him independence uh, so that... You know, somebody like Merrick Garland or others of the Department of Justice couldn't interfere and say, you know, back off. Um, and, and why not? I mean, after all, in order to protect John Durham, who was a U.S. attorney at the time, Bill Barr elevated him to special counsel. So That's it made no sense to me 
why Barr didn't do the same with David Weiss. Uh, and, and I, you know, I don't think that Merrick Garland would elevate David Weiss to special counsel status. He wants to rewind the clock, as you say, and yeah. start anew to buy more time for his boss, Joe Biden. Yeah, that's the fear. And, that, and again, we'll have to see what happens with the attorney general. You know, I think Bill Barr's tenure at the attorney general is going to be looked back on in a few years with a very, uh, I don't want to say harsh set of eyes, but I think they're going to look with some revisionist eyes because he's clearly a very smart legal scholar, very accomplished lawyer, served his country twice as attorney general. Not many people have ever done that. But I think there were these moments where he got himself tied up into knots with uh, some bureaucratic argument when common sense said, listen, you owe the country this. And I'll just give you one example that always comes up to me. He has said you know, I, in the summer of 19 and, and through 20, both Jeff Session and Barr's teams repeatedly told me there was no criminal investigation of Hunter Biden, though I had law enforcement sources telling me there was. But hey, when the attorney general's people tell you not, you're gonna, that's a high threshold to overcome. Right. We now know that he said he kept it a secret because he felt that was his obligation that he couldn't announce it or do anything. There's an odd thing. I know there's the 90-day rule, uh, which we have. But by the way, some of the first inquiries about Hunter Biden were months and months before the 90-day rule of not doing anything political 90 days before election. But in the very same window where Bill Barr has said over and over again, I couldn't give any, I, I really want to tell people about Hunter Biden, but I can't. I couldn't. He was releasing information, explosive information about Russia collusion, which clearly affected Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump in September of 2020. He released the famous notes about Joe Biden in the meeting about the Logan Act. He released information about the, the false allegations against Mike Flynn. He had no problem tipping the American public in the, in the lead up to an election on that stuff. And then he has it as an excuse for not telling the world about Hunter Biden. I don't get it. He acted contrary to his own views when he was dumping that information. I think he's a guy that got tied up by the bureaucracy. I think he knew what the right thing to do was. He's a very smart man. But at the end of the day, the American people were allowed to endure a false story that the Hunter Biden laptop and the Hunter Biden corruption story was Russian disinformation when all along it was true and the FBI knew it going back to the summer of 2018. That's when they first got the evidence. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, I always uh, enjoy your conversations. We've had many of them. Um, I read everything you write and everybody should. Uh, you can get uh, John's columns on justthenews.com. Uh, many, many thanks, as always. Uh, you're a great journalist and a good friend. John Solomon, founder, CEO, editor-in-chief of Just the News. And as I said at the outset, really one of the best investigative reporters in America. John, thanks so much for joining The Brief. Thanks, Greg. Great honor. And that's The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. Thanks for listening. <laughs>